Today's episode of The Unlovely Truth is crazy special to me. We get to be updated on an amazing story from last season. Larry and Connie Van Oosten were looking forward to a quiet retirement in the small, peaceful town of Erie, Illinois. They'd worked so hard and planned well. Little did they know that a man had spent over a year and a half working hard on a plan to kidnap and terrorize them so that he could get his hands on their hard-earned retirement savings. But Larry and Connie had an unshakable faith in God that helped them not only survive the ordeal, but it also helped them stay strong once they realized that the kidnapper was someone they knew. I'm so happy that you're here for this new episode. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. I want us to tackle this story from the world of true crime and see what spiritual and safety takeaways we find there. I believe that we all have a calling to be a different kind of PI. Not a private investigator like me, but a person of impact. And being able to do that is so much easier than you might think. This is Season 4, Episode 23. Our book this week is a revisiting of Rescued for a Reason. And our guests, of course, are Connie and Larry Van Oosten. I'm going to quickly recap their story, but... You can listen more in depth by following the link in the show notes to listen to the two-part episode that describes their story more in depth. I think it's pretty easy to pull very important takeaways out of how Larry and Connie made it through this horrific ordeal and how they've dealt with the aftermath. It all started for them in the early morning hours of February 7, 2017. Larry's screams woke Connie out of a deep sleep. She saw a stranger dressed entirely in black in their bedroom and he had just shot Larry with a taser. The man commanded them both to lie face down and not look at him. Connie began to pray out loud, begging God for his help. The man mocked her, saying, where is your God now? Larry boldly told the man that God was right there with them, and that he could and would forgive him for what he was about to do. Larry's my hero for that. Connie and Larry were both handcuffed, and when the intruder left the room for a moment, Larry asked Connie if she was ready to meet Jesus. I'm absolutely amazed and in awe to listen to how Larry describes the peace that came over him. He said it was like an irrational lack of fear. Only God could do that. Unfortunately, it didn't last long because the intruder returned. This time he took Connie with him. He needed her to give him information to access all of the Van Oosten's bank accounts. He also forced Connie to cancel any appointments that she and Larry had and to tell their kids and their friends that they would be out of town for a bit. He forced them to sign papers, giving him access to their life savings. Then he stuffed them in the trunk of his car. He had built a hiding place where he thought no one would ever find them. Connie and Larry were terrified to try to get help, even when the man wasn't with them because he had told them that he was only one member of a group who had planned this and that there were cameras that were capturing Larry and Connie's every move. The next day, the man took Connie away from Larry again. This time, he had her arrange with the bank to pick up a check made out to a company that she had never heard of. A bank employee needed her to sign papers before they could release that check, and Connie was so smart. She used an old church bulletin that she found in her purse to write a note telling that employee what had happened to her and Larry and that their kidnapper was outside watching. The employee did a great job of not completely freaking out, which would have put Larry's life in further danger. And then the bank manager called 911. Local authorities turned around and called the Van Oosten's son, Jeff, 
and they all raced to Connie and Larry's house. They quickly found a broken basement window where the kidnapper had entered the house. When authorities checked out that company that the kidnapper insisted the check from the bank be made out to, Jeff was absolutely shocked. He knew the man associated with that phony company. The kidnapper had no way of knowing that an investigation had begun, so he followed his plan and returned to the Van Oosten's house to clean up the scene of his crime. His first words to law enforcement as they took him into custody were, How did you know it was me? 40-year-old Chad Shipper insisted that he had taken good care of Larry and Connie while the police were arresting him. He told them where Larry and Connie were. As authorities arrived at the house to rescue them, Larry and Connie assumed that it was this gang that the kidnapper had told them about coming to kill them. So they prayed. I don't know about you, but I cannot even imagine their relief when they realized that it was the local police and the FBI there to set them free after 48 hours in captivity instead of a gang of thugs bent on robbing and probably murdering them. After getting thorough medical exams, answering questions for law enforcement, and being reunited with their family, Larry and Connie now had a new trauma to deal with. They found out that they actually knew their kidnapper. They'd known him since he was a kid. Larry and Connie had even been his Sunday school teachers. We all know that justice in our system is not swift. It took over two years for Chad's trial, conviction, and sentencing to be accomplished. In the meantime, he continued to torment and traumatize the Van Oostens from his jail cell. We'll hear more about how he did that from Larry and Connie themselves in just a minute. Before we do that, I think we need to talk for just a second about the victims we rarely acknowledge, the family of the perpetrator. They have to live with the shame of what Chad did and the guilt that they didn't see it coming so that they could try to stop him. If you know someone that's been through a trauma, it is so easy to really harbor a lot of bitterness toward the perpetrator. But try and remember their families, their friends, and even the perpetrator themselves. They need our prayers too. We all want to believe that we're safe in our home, and usually we are. The problem is that we don't always get a warning when that's going to change. That's why I wrote, In God We Trust, Everyone Else Gets a Background Check. It'll be available on June 27th, and I have packed it full of practical tips, helpful Bible verses, and encouragement. Make sure you listen to next week's episode because I'm going to read a short passage so that you can get just a taste of what it's all about. Now let's check in with Larry and Connie and see what life has been like since their rescue. Larry and Connie, I want to thank you so much for joining me. I was so excited to hear that you wanted to share your story a little bit more in depth because most of my listeners know your story. They've heard it before, but I want to ask you a few deeper questions. So one thing that really, really struck me was that the trauma did not end once you were free. Chad actually wrote letters to you while he was in prison, pretending to be someone else and really encouraging you through this other persona to forgive him. What did that feel like once you realized that those letters were from him? Well, the first letter came on a Monday and I was home alone and I went to the mailbox. I opened it up and saw this letter and it came from Rockford, Illinois. And I thought, well, I can't imagine who that could be. And then when I opened it, I started to read it. I just sat outside on the steps, started reading it. And it's this heartfelt story from this Eloise May just about the difficulties in her life, the 
everything that she had faced and how through her faith she was willing to forgive this this gentleman who had hurt her. And she wanted us to know that so that we could go and we could forgive Chad. That was within the first letter. It kind of took me by surprise and somewhat overwhelming. And then when Larry and my son came home, they both looked at it and became suspicious that something was not something was not right. And so we called our detective. We had a meeting the next day at the courthouse, one of our pre-trials. So we took the letter with, went over and gave it to our detective. And he said, this came from the jail. This is what they write on. This came from the jail. But I can't figure out why, you know, how this would get out to you, because he is not to have any contact with us at all. At first, it, you know, it was it was overwhelming that Yes, we know we need to forgive. We know that. But it's the way that he was asking for forgiveness. He had no... Well, no remorse. His ultimate goal was to reduce his sentence. And that he was trying to convince us, put a good word in, you know, in for him with the state's attorney. Connie really did feel sorry for the lady. She thought it was real. And I had looked at it, and in this particular letter, he didn't really change his handwriting, and I was a little bit familiar with the way he printed very small, and I became suspicious right away. And uh, as Connie said, we had that meeting the next day, and we took it in, and they found out it was stationary from the jail. The way he did this and uh, the way he tried to manipulate us afterwards just proved that he really had no no remorse. And you mentioned your son looked at this as well. And Mm -hmm. that was something else that just kept coming to mind again, how you weren't the only ones that experienced trauma because of this man, your family, your friends, and really your entire community to different degrees were also victimized. Tell me a little bit about that ongoing impact what this man did has had. And and I'm glad you asked this question because During the time right after we were rescued, we received a lot of attention, you know, from different people, community, the church, where our son and daughter, Jeff and Amy, really didn't get that. And they were, as you said, traumatized as much as we were because they spent those two, two and a half days not knowing what was going on. And they're the ones that spent the time with the police during the searches and uh, not knowing all along, you know, what had happened to us. So they have become very protective, almost overprotective of Connie and I. And any time that there's anything a little out of the ordinary, like we don't answer our cell phone or they're unable to get a hold of us, they still react that way and and make sure that they find us somewhere. They're very, very protective. And sometimes I say overprotective, but I know that's the way that they they show their love. So yeah, they've been truly impacted. We all have. Yes. And we know forgiveness is a big part of this. And it's it's an ongoing. It's something that that doesn't just happen like Chad wanted to, where we say, oh, yes, we forgive you. Yes, you should have a light sentence. But with everything that he had done to us and others, we didn't want him to go to prison for the rest of his life, but we knew that he couldn't do this to somebody else because he would have. He would most definitely have. 
As far as the impact on the community, we have a sweet lady who works in a local store here. And when we go in there, she just, it's like she almost has tears in her eyes because she was so overwhelmed with what happened to us. And the hugs and the love that we've been showed are just amazing. God has been there with us from the very beginning, and he continues to be with us. Now, do we do everything we're supposed to do in regards to the forgiveness for everything? No, not not at all. We continue to struggle, and we pray for, for salvation. salvation. Yes. You know, we don't. We pray for salvation. We know that he has to be where he is. But we also know that the only way forgiveness is possible is through the Holy Spirit. Humanly, it's impossible, but he does. He does help you get to that point where you can forgive. And I really do think we have. Connie said that we struggle. We're, we're like anybody else. You know, something comes up and our first reaction probably isn't what it should be. But we really, we depend on the Holy Spirit to help us through that and to accomplish his forgiveness. Connie mentioned the community and and just the outpouring of love. It's still ongoing. A lot of it's our friends, but it's a lot of people we don't know. You know, we've had an opportunity to talk to several different churches, and it's the same everywhere we go. Not only our small community here in Erie, but just a, a large community of Christians who care. We have been overwhelmed by that. Now, there's still things that come up. If Connie sees a light out in the field or something, she still is, you know, becomes alarmed. It's probably never over as far as thinking about it, but we really believe he promised us he'll use it for good, and I believe he has because we've had an opportunity to witness to a lot of people. You talk very, very powerfully in your book about how the experience actually deepened your relationship with God, which I think sounds to a lot of people probably counterintuitive, but you say you trust him more because you know that he was with you throughout that entire ordeal. So how does that knowledge, how does that change how you live your life day to day? It has made it clear that he is in control. Now, could I have said that before this happened? I could have said it without really feeling it the way I do now. I know he's in control. I know he's there for us every step of the way. And I do try and trust more. When something comes up, Prior to this, I tend to worry about everything, and I, I, I haven't really reached perfection on that because I didn't worry about the kids and grandkids. But I'll stop myself and say, Wait, no, no, you, you've got this. You're in control. And that has really changed the way I view things that I used to think were a really big deal. What about you, Connie? From the very beginning, just when he stood in the doorway and I had said those words, Lord, please help us, that was so clear that God was there because of his response being so firm that, you know, where's your God now? We definitely felt it. You know there's evil out there. You you see it in the news. You see it around you. But truly feeling that sense of evil within Chad was unbelievable. And just the the peace that we felt from just knowing that God was there, that we wouldn't have been able to go through what Chad was putting us through if God had not had a strong presence with us. Mm -hmm. um, Because we, we had that calm that we were able to deal with everything that he was putting in front of us. 
As far as doing these types of things and speaking at churches, doing the documentary, that's that's not us. But he's enabled us to witness boldly, where maybe before we would maybe hold back. And uh, we look forward to it now to be able to talk to people and help people. That part has really, really changed. And just giving us an opportunity to do those types of things is very, very important. And we looked at Romans 8.28, you know, when we were held, and it says in there that you can know, you know, that he's going to work for the good in all things. And there again, that verse has much more meaning now than it ever did before. You can read a verse and you agree with it and you say, yeah, that that's, but it really hits home now that we, we do know that and it is in all things. I think most of us would not know what to do if someone in our circle was impacted by a trauma like what you guys endured. So if someone listening has a friend or a loved one or just someone they know who needs some sort of help, they've experienced that trauma, what is a good thing that you can do to show practical support and love to people? Good question. And because we went through that, it's, and, don't be afraid. Don't be don't be timid or afraid to talk to that person because you think you might not say the right thing. You know, a lot of times at a funeral, you go up to somebody, you give them a hug and say, you know, we're here for you. Make it a constant. Continue to reach out. Exactly. And it, it doesn't have to be any great words of wisdom, but just let people know you care. I know it at church, there was a lot of people that just didn't talk to us because they didn't know what to say, and they were afraid to say anything. And I know I relate the one story about the lady in church who came out, and she got in the door and just stood there and didn't know what to say, and a tear rolled down her eye. That's all you have to do. You know, you don't have to have great words of wisdom or, or Bible verses or anything like that. The, li the little <laughs> things, the, the hugs are so important. You know, that, uh, and there's a lot of things that you don't know how they're feeling, and it's okay to say that. I mean, there's a lot of people that didn't know how we were feeling, and that's fine. And uh, it's like Connie said, just let them know, give them a hug, and you need anything. To me, those simple things really made an impact. I think that your story brings up really an age old question among believers, and really anybody. Why do bad things happen to good people? And I think maybe a better question is, why do bad things happen at all if God is good? So I'm sure people have to ask you, how can you believe in a good God when you've been through what you've been through? So how do you answer those folks? I went to counseling. It was highly recommended that we go to counseling after this and we found a wonderful Christian counselor. And I knew this, but him saying it, he said, you know, God didn't do this to you. Chad did it. God was there with you, and he guided you, and you're here, you know, we're blessed today to be here. But he guided you through. He gave you the direction that you needed to get through and everything that you needed to get through. it. But God didn't do this. But he's going to be there. I mean, with, there's horrific things that, that happen, and you, you can't explain why. But knowing that God's with you is the most important part of it, because he's, he's not going to leave us. He says he's not going to. He tells us that over and over again. And we could see the evil in Chad. So there is evil in the world. 
it's a spiritual battle that we fight every day. And as Connie said, God didn't do that to you, but the evil that's in the world that was in Chad did. And he'll he'll give you the strength to get through it. I kind of put things in an eternal perspective. You know, what we're going through now, the trials we're going through, they're temporary, they're short. He has such a better future for us than anything we have here. And the, the things we go through here, a lot of times to help us be stronger and be better, be better witnesses, we could have gone either way. You know, we could have been victims and feel angry and sad all the time. But it's just not an option because he he did so much for us. He died for us. He, you know, he did everything for us. You always have to keep that in mind. It's kind of the way I look at some of those things is, they're temporary trials, and they are bad. They are evil. Evil's here. He tells us that we're in a battle and that you need to persevere. You bring up an excellent point, because I think a lot of times we can be a little naive, maybe, in the church, and we'd like to think that evil presents itself as evil. It's going to be extremely obvious. We're going to notice it. But this young man, you knew him from church. So I think we all need to open our minds to the idea that we need to look very critically at everyone in our world and not give anybody a pass just because they have a certain title or because we go to church with them, because any of us has the capacity to choose evil. It's absolutely right. So what do you think the biggest takeaway from this experience has been for you as far as your own personal safety. What do you do a little differently now? What do you notice that maybe you didn't notice before? What do you keep yourself on the lookout for? If you could see where we live, we are very, very rural. I grew up here. We didn't lock our doors. We didn't do anything. You never even thought about things like that. You never thought of people trying to cheat you or, or scam you or anything. You do look at these types of things a lot differently now. We have an alarm system in the house that I never thought we would ever have anything like that, but we do. And now when when someone approaches us with a plan or a financial plan or anything like that, we're apt to really scrutinize it and probably do nothing. We're much more aware of things like that. And I know Connie's life has changed tremendously from what she used to do. And it's our kids that insisted on the alarm system immediately, (laughs) but definitely more aware of my surroundings. I didn't go out very often at first by myself at all. That has gotten much better, but I am aware of my surroundings and where I'm at. And just looking at things a little bit differently than we used to. I used to travel a lot with my job, and so this was quite a change for me to be more cautious. And not that we distrust people, it's just I think they have to earn trust with these situations, if it's financial, whatever it is, just just to make sure that we're aware of what's going on around us. Our kids are very concerned about that as well. They're very cautious. And I still tend to trust people probably, I don't want to say more than I should, but but quite a bit. And the kids do remind me to be a little more cautious. And I think I probably am now more so than I ever was. That has really changed, you know, that for me in particular, it was kind of 
kind of grew up in the Chicago area, and she was used to taking more precautions than I ever did. It's still almost foreign to me, but we do take precautions. We don't want to live in fear. We don't want to be distrustful. We just want to be cautious. And so that's one of the reasons I love sharing stories like your story, because not only is it a tremendous inspiration, but it has very practical implications for all of us. We can all benefit from being more cautious and checking things out and being being more aware of our surroundings, like you said, Connie. And you mentioned that you've had the opportunity to share your story in several different places. So if somebody wanted to bring you to their church or their organization to have your story told, how would they best get in contact with you? It's funny because I get phone calls just out of the blue of people that want us, and we have no clue. Our first church was in Elvira, Iowa, a little church. They they heard about our story and looked us up and there was our phone number. So we don't have a website. We, yet. Yeah, we don't We've, have a website. We just have our like our email address. We've had a variety of different things. We've spoken at a senior center. We've mostly have spoken at churches and we try not to turn anybody down. If they want us to come and speak, we'll do our best to accommodate if we can. We've been fairly busy with it. I mean, surprisingly for us, we wrote the book to hopefully to help others and to be an outreach. That was the reason that we did, told the story in the beginning and then wanted to have the gospel in the, in the end so that it would draw people to read it and then to hear God's word. So that's that's been our goal. And as far as the speaking, we are not public speakers, as you can tell. We're just <laughs> ordinary people. We yeah. just basically tell our story. And then people always have questions. They always have questions, which is wonderful. We, we love that part. We did a documentary that's going to come out on Discovery Plus in November called Feds. And they're taking stories that are positive stories in FBI cases and with has a positive outcome. And we've done another pod, a couple other podcasts. And then we were just invited to an FBI retraining and we spoke with them as well. That was really interesting because it gave us an opportunity to thank them for their professionalism and expertise. And we hadn't really had a platform to do that. They knew more about what happened than we did. And so that, that, that was very interesting. But our take on speaking and books and everything we just, so far, have just left it up to God. We haven't gone out and sought speaking engagement. As far as any profit from the book, we donate that. And uh, it's just been, if he opens up a door, we're going to walk through it. Your That's- story is so worth sharing. Well, thank you. Thank you. So I want to thank you again for being here with me, for giving us a little more insight into not only what you went through, but how that's affected you and how we can all take that and apply it to our own lives. So it's just been such a joy to speak with you both. You as well. It's wonderful (laughs) meeting you as well. Thank you. Hopefully it's been helpful. Thank you. Oh, for sure. Our Bible verses this week are Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. I know that this sounds pretty straightforward, 
But of course, this is hyperbole. This is taking an extreme stance to make a point. I am in no way suggesting that we can lose our salvation if we're struggling to forgive someone. What I am suggesting is that we consider how harboring a spirit of unforgiveness puts distance between us and God. It strains our relationship. Forgiveness is a lot of things. Forgiveness is a lot of things, but first and foremost, it is an act of obedience. We often think that it's a feeling that has to develop inside us before we can apply it. I know I've been guilty of that myself. But multiple researchers have shown that smiling, even when we don't feel like it, can make a difference in our physical well-being. Just Google research about how smiling makes you happy to see it all. The act influences the feeling just as much as the feeling influences the act. That's how we should approach forgiveness in really tough situations. If we forgive even when we don't feel like it, that conscious act of obedience will soften our hearts and allow God to minister to us even more deeply. If this episode taught you something and lifted you up, be sure that you check out some of my earlier ones. I've had so many amazing guests. They have taught me things that I want you to learn as well. I'd also like to encourage you to help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact, by sharing this episode with them. I think that it will really encourage them. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. That helps a lot of new people learn about what we're doing here at The Unlovely Truth. And you could also give me a five-star rating and a nice review you want to support the work that we're doing. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.